every generation has to reiterate, rewrite what those genres are and what they mean in the vocabulary of the moment. So the idea of the elegy, it's not a set form. It's not a set sort of like idea. We each have to rewrite that thing when we write. That's our job in a way. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks and readings from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. On May 15, 2020, Rick Barrett, the award-winning author of Cord, Want, and The Darker Fall, joined us for a virtual reading in the midst of the pandemic. His latest book of poems, The Galleons, was long listed for this year's National Book Award and, in honor, we're pleased to present it to you now. His reading is introduced by me and then a conversation follows moderated by poet Jane Wong. Jane is the author of Over Poor from Action Books and How to Not Be Afraid of Everything, forthcoming from Alice James Books. This is Sal on Air. It is bittersweet to introduce Rick Barrett to you in this medium. This event was originally scheduled for March 15th to launch his new book, his fourth book, The Galleons Into the World. And though May finds us still floating on our own, we are very glad to deliver a care package of Rick Barrett and his poems to your particular island today. In his new book, which he will read to you from, Barrett twines into couplets strains of memory and history, present and past, Poet Victoria Chang, in a review of the book, described the galleons as, quote, ultimately about the speaker's many journeys from the Philippines, as a descendant of his grandmother, as a writer, a thinker, a lover, and a human. Upon reading these poems for the first time, I was struck by the beginning of a line in the very first poem in the book, quote, and because waiting is thinking, he began. It rang immediately as true then, and even truer now. We are in the great think, and who better to show us how to think through it, or just think in it, than Rick Barrett. His work has a stillness that I admire, as if the speaker's memories or observations or intersections are already on canvas, carved from marble, or crafted from washi tape. They are works of art ready for the acrostic eye. Poetry, he said in an interview, is, quote, very much on the front lines of describing the world as it is, as it is unfolding. I read these poems in the before, before the unfolding, on a bright weekend away, where I touched things, touched people, and where these poems touched me. Now, firmly in the unfolding, or the waiting, or the big think, whatever you call it. I take solace in these poems and in the new during the pandemic poems Rick Wolf share with us. It is a gift that literature and poetry can still touch us and to be reminded that waiting is thinking, is writing, is art. So I ring your doorbell and I step back six feet. I give you Rick Barrett. Hi everyone, I'm Rick Barrett. And I'm so disappointed that we're not able to gather in Seattle today, but I'm glad that we can gather in this way 
and celebrate poetry. Thanks so much to Rebecca Hoogs and Seattle Arts and Lectures for inviting me to the series and for working so hard to make this event happen. Thanks also to Arthur James for his music and to Charlotte Calero for her beautiful poem. And thanks finally to all of you for tuning in. I'm excited to be sharing my poetry with you. One thing I wanted to mention before we get started is that for the last few months, I've been recovering from a case of Bell's palsy on this side of my face. So if it looks like I'm talking like a pirate right now, it's because of the Bell's palsy. And I hope it's not too distracting for you. This reading was meant to be the book launch for my new book of poems, The Galleons, which is this book right here. And it was published by Milkweed Editions in February. And I'm going to be reading poems from this book as well as some newer poems. At its core, The Galleons is an elegy for my grandmother, Maria Pasqua, who died in 2016 at 92 years old. The book thinks about her long life in relation to the larger scale of history. The opening poem in the book is called The Grasshopper and the Cricket. Some of you may recognize that title because it's also the title of a sonnet by John Keats. The sonnet by Keats has a very well-known opening line. The poetry of earth is never dead. My poem plays around with that opening line and also with Keats's sonnet. The Grasshopper and the Cricket. The poetry of earth is a 90-year-old woman in front of a slot machine in a casino in California. She's wearing a gray dress, her sharp red lipstick in two lines across her mouth, put there by a daughter. Like Gertrude Stein's, her hair is cut close. Nearby is her wheelchair, painted blue like a boy's bicycle. It is a weekday in March. The casino is the size of a hangar that could house a dozen airplanes, but it is thousands of machines that fill the eye, an event of light and color. The sentences she now speaks are like the sentences of Gertrude Stein, but without the ironies of art. Her mind is like a compressed accordion, the far points now near, more present than the present. Waiting, I'm at the food court, reading a magazine article about the languages the world is losing. The languages spoken only by a few remaining people or by one remaining person or lost completely, except for the grainy recordings in archives, mysterious as the sounds made 
by extinct birds. The reels on her machine spin. Their symbols never match. She is playing the one cent slots and her money will go far into the afternoon. And because waiting is thinking, I am thinking of the eternity Keats writes about in the sonnet about the grasshopper and the cricket, seizing never in the hedges and in the meadows, in the evening stove, the grasshopper of summer, the cricket of winter. The title poem for the galleons is a 10 poem sequence, sequence that encompasses uh, a number of themes, including my grandmother's life story, colonialism, capitalism, and ideas about history in general. I'd like to read a few sections of that title sequence. This is The Galleons One. Her story is a part of something larger. It is a part of history. No, her story is an illumination of history, the matchstick lit in the black seam of time. Or no, her story is separate from the whole, as distinct as each person is distinct from the stream of people that led to the one and leads past the one. Or her story is surrounded by history, the ambient spaciousness of which she is the momentary foreground. Maybe history is a net through which just about everything passes. And the pieces of her story are particles caught in the net. Or her story is a contradiction, something ordinary that has no part in history at all. If history is about what is included, what is made important. History is the galleon in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, in the middle of the 16th century, swaying like a drunk who will take six months to finally reach his house. She is on another ship centuries later, on a journey eastward that will take weeks across the same ocean. The war is over, though her husband is still in his officer's uniform, small but confident among the tall white officers. Her hair is marcelled like a movie star's waves, though she has been too sick with the water's motion to know that anyone sees her. Her daughter is two years old, the blur of need at the center of each day's incessant rocking. Here's a ship, here's an ocean, here's a figure, her story a few words in the blue void. This is another poem in the Galleon sequence. It's titled, The Galleon's 
three. Because I am one of those people who will talk to you if you are next to me on an airplane, I'm telling the man beside me about my life as a teacher and my life as a poet. He is in his early 30s, served in the Marine Corps in Afghanistan, and now he works as a long-haul truck driver. I was going home. He was going home for a long weekend visit with his parents. When I ask if he has a wife and kids, he says that he has his dispatcher. When I ask about Afghanistan, he says he has a dog from a shelter named Felix who stays with his parents during the weeks when he is away. When I tell him I'm trying to write a poem about the Spanish galleon trade, he tells me about the things that he has carried. Hay from Nebraska to Florida, TVs from Delaware to Mississippi, bark from California to Texas, refrigerated foods from Missouri to North Dakota, rolls of carpet from Alabama to Minnesota, and unspecified hazardous materials that went with a security escort from Michigan to Ohio. He has been driving for two years, but eventually he wants to, sh to shift to a day shift job with FedEx or DHL or UPS. Close to home and close to my bar, he says. On the long hauls, he listens to audiobooks, mostly thrillers and fantasy novels, and keeps track of the number of miles, hoping to reach a million one day. On his phone, he shows me a photo of Felix, a brown dog with an old dog's gray muzzle, one eye softly brown, the other eye marbled gold and green, like the weather on another planet. So the third and final section of the galleons that I'd like to read requires a little bit of explanation. As, as you'll see on the screenshot that is going to be displayed, the poem is arranged in an unusual way. The first line of each stanza is comprised of excerpts from a series of interviews that I recorded with my grandmother, Maria. The second line of each stanza is in my own voice. Years before her death, I did the interviews with her without really thinking about what I would do with them. When she died, I wanted to honor her life stories and braiding her voice with my own in this poem was one way I could do that. Because I can't read the poem as it's laid out on the page, I'll read it one strand at a time. First, the lines in her voice, and then the lines in my own voice. This is the Galleons 5. 
we didn't want to be noticed. So we put charcoal on our faces, all the girls looking like dirt. My father was always drinking or with women. My mother had to take care of the business. My sister broke her back when she was a child. She grew up into a hunchback. She died very young. They set up a dance at the municipal tennis courts to celebrate the end of the war. And he was there in his US uniform. He always insisted that we sit at the front, but when I was by myself on the bus, I sat somewhere in the middle. I didn't want trouble. I was around 55 when I had my first real job, working as the security at Macy's. I always liked to read. I wanted to go to college like my sisters, but I got married. You know that wedding dress in the picture? We had to borrow it from our neighbor. I liked Japan when he was stationed there. It was so clean. Then Norfolk, Richmond. I was so sick on the ship. I can't remember much. Your mama just kept running all around. It was a Navy ship. My mother's name is Kanuta Sakai, and my father's name is Enrique Omega. My grandparents were farmers outside Ormuk. I was born in Ormuk, December 8, 1924 or 25. This was the apartment we lived in in Maryland. That's Junior there in the picture. And there's your mama. And this is the other half of the poem, which is in my voice. I listened to the hours of tape of the two of us at the dining table. Questions about the town, her parents, the names of people that only she could now remember. The images I imagined scrolling in her mind and translated into the answers that she gave, sometimes pausing, not because she couldn't recall, but didn't want to recall badly. The pause, a kind of gap between what she knew and what the words could do. The two things a voice can say when it is saying one thing, the things that suddenly return when you are speaking, like pockets of color coming to life in your mind. I listened to her with my skin and my eyes, my ears. I had had the notion that asking her about her life might add something to what I thought of as my art, as though her past and her love could be vectors of use. But I started to realize that what I actually needed to know, I would have to conjure for myself. 
because what we know most deeply, we guard best. Even as she spoke, laughed, passed the glow of each story to me, like a document I could have in hand, but could not understand. I put the tape away, felt for years that it was enough, the responsibility done. Our conversation stopped when my aunt came to take her out for some errands. Chatter, chairs moved around, the noises that are just noises. So moving away now from the title sequence of the galleons, in this next poem, the only thing you need to know in advance is that I'm referencing Louis Vuitton. This poem is called The Girl Carrying a Ladder. On the same day, I read about the luxury goods company that has produced a punching bag you can buy for $175,000. I see the photograph of the Palestinian girl who carries a ladder with her each morning when she goes to school. To scale the wall of my own understanding of why a punching bag would cost so much, I have to think about why I'm attracted to that punching bag the way some people are attracted to pink kittens or the way some people are attracted to camouflage or the way some people are attracted to their gods. I want that punching bag the way the girl carrying the ladder wants to go to school, relentless, single-minded, and absurd. Carrying the ladder that is twice or three times as tall as she is, leaning the ladder against the wall that separates her from her school. The girl goes up the ladder as though it were something she did every day, which she does. When I think of a punching bag, I think of sex. When I think of a ladder, I think of picking apples. When I think of the girl carrying the ladder to go to school, I think of the neighborhood girls carrying pink camouflage backpacks, not knowing about the armies that the camouflage stands for. The logo of the luxury brand is printed all over the punching bag, the way camouflage is all over us. Camouflage bed sheets, camouflage cell phone covers, camouflage shirts in neon colors that everyone wears, even those people who vote against guns. We live in paradox and we prosper. We live in paradox and we thrive. What I can figure out is how the girl deals with the barbed wire at the top of the wall she has to go over, or what the ladder weighs, or what she does with the ladder when she gets to school. Does she put it against the wall with the other ladders, the way kids put their bikes in bike racks at school? 
What I can't figure out is why two men who look like gods would want to break down the wall of each other's faces, knowing there's only blood on the other side, or why apples are the fruit children bring to their teachers, and why it isn't coconuts or grapefruit, or why the neighborhood girls on their way to school each morning carry backpacks that are so heavy, it looks like they are carrying the world. This next poem is called The Blink Reflex. The Blink Reflex. I have this notion that if you live long enough, there are three or four great stories that you will have in your life. A story of a journey or a transformation. A story of love, which will likely mean the loss of love a story of loss, and a story of spiritual illumination, which for many people will probably me mean the moment of death itself, the story untellable, its beginning and middle and end collapsing with its teller into a disappearing conclusion. I have believed long enough in my notion to know that it is a romantic notion, that it erodes each time I realize that the shard and not the whole comprises a life, the image and not the narrative. Otherwise, there's no reason why all I remember of the airplane I took as an immigrant child from one country to another is the moist towelette packet we were given with our meal, the wonder and absurdity of it. Or that in love, high in a tree in the dark and high, he and I sat in the rain damp branches and ate donuts from 7-Eleven. Or this, this piece of a story that isn't even mine, that isn't even a story, but a glance of an experience of the friend who held the stray dog after it was struck by a car. Not knowing whether the dog was dead, my friend called a friend who worked for a vet. Poke the dog in the eye, this friend said because if the animal no longer has a blink reflex, it probably means the animal is dead. Decades after college, when you could do such a thing, I typed his name into a search engine to find out what became of the 18-year-old boy from the tree. Like dozens of old keys in a drawer, so many people with the wrong name and the right name at the same time. The child dead from leukemia with a school gym named for him. The wrestler who had a perfectly square jaw like a cartoon police detective in a fedora. 
When I arrived at a page that was certainly about him, I no longer knew his face, but I, re but I recognized the life that he had had. He had transferred to another college, gone to film school, and become a producer of TV documentaries. A film about fishermen, the harsh, the harsh fishing season in Alaska. A film about Abraham Lincoln and a film about the last days of Adolf Hitler. A film about the Sherpas who go up and down the Himalayas. This next poem um, is for, uh, for those of you who have taken the Amtrak from perhaps Seattle down to Portland. Uh, it's, a, it's a journey that I've taken a number of times myself on the, the Cascades 501 line. So this is a poem that I wrote after taking one of those trips. This poem is called Cascades 501. The man sitting behind me is telling the man sitting next to him about his heart bypass. Outside the train's window, the landscapes smear by. The earnest, haphazard distillations of America. The backyards and backsides of houses. The back lots of shops and factories the underpasses of bridges, and then the stretches of actual land, which is not so much land, but the kinds of watercourses and greenery that register like luck in the mind. Dense walls of trees, punky little woods, the living continually outgrowing, the fallen and the decaying the vines and ivies taking over everything, proving that the force of disorder is also the force of plenty. Then the eye dilating to the sudden clearings, fields, meadows, the bogs that must have been left by retreating glaciers, the creeks, the algae broth inside ponds, then the broad silver of rivers, shiny as turnstiles. Attrition, dispersal, growth, a system unfastened to story, as though the green site itself was beyond story, was peacefully beyond any clear meaning. But why the gust of alertness that comes to me every time any indication of the human passes into sight, like a mirror, like to like, even though I am not the summer backyard with the orange soccer ball resting there, even though I am not the pickup truck parked askew in the back lot, its two doors opened wide and no one around to show whether it is funny or an emergency 
that the truck is like that. Each thing looks new, even when it is old and broken down. They had to open me up. The man is now telling the other man behind me. I wasn't there to see it, but they opened me up. So the final poem that I will read from the Galleons is the final poem in the book itself. And the title of the poem is Ode with Interruptions. And the ode is for the house in Oakland, California that my parents have lived in for almost 40 years now. I grew up in this house and I often visit it. And what's strange to me about going back there is the hauntedness that I feel when I'm in the house. The house seems haunted, but not with other people's lives, even though the house is at least 100 years old. Instead, the house feels haunted with my own previous lives. So this is a poem a little bit about that. It's called Ode with Interruptions. Someone is in the kitchen washing the dishes. Someone is in the living room watching the news. Someone in a bedroom is holding a used stamp with tweezers and adding it to his collection. Someone is scolding a dog, barking now for decades, a different dog for each of the decades. Someone is reading the paper and listening to a baseball game on the radio at the same time. At the base of the altar, you drop some coins into a wooden box and lights reveal the vast worn painting in front of you. The holy subject is illuminated for a few minutes before it is dim again. There are churches all over Italy where you can do this. The smell of incense, the smell of stone. Someone is taking the ashes out of the small cave of the fireplace, though this might have been a hundred years ago when the house was new and we didn't live in it. Someone is writing a letter on thin blue paper. Someone is putting down the needle onto a spinning record, just so. On the couch, someone is sleeping. Upstairs, someone is looking into the bathroom mirror. While we were waiting for her surgery to finish, I walked around the hospital and came across a waiting room that had an immense aquarium. The black fish with red stripes, the yellow fish with blue stripes, the triangle fish, the cylinder fish, the little orange schools, and the cellophane glints of their quick turns in the box of water, among arrangements of coral, that city of bones. Someone is walking down the creaking staircase in the dark, a hand sliding on the rail. 
someone is on the telephone, which means nobody else can use it for another hour. Someone in his room is doing homework, me or someone almost like me, 20, 50 years ago. Someone is reading in her room. Someone is talking to the gray wall. Someone is talking to the gray wall. In summer, on a hot afternoon, someone peels at a corner of wallpaper and sees only more wallpaper underneath. I used to think that to write poems, to make art, meant trying to transcend the prosaic elements of the self, to arrive at some essential plane where poems were supposed to succeed. I was wrong. We'll return for the rest of Rick Barrett's event in a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about some ways you can join Sal for Great Poets no matter where you are. Our 2021 lineup includes readings by poets Maggie Smith, Natalie Diaz, Toy Derricotte, and Alberto Rios, and talks by poets Ocean Vuong and Douglas Kearney. Subscriptions and $10 digital passes for all events are available now at lectures.org. And now, more poems by Rick Barrett. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit by reading some new poems that I've written. So during March, I started to obsessively write very short prose poems using the Notes app on my phone. These poems weren't really meant to be poems at first, just ways of trying to cope with the stress and anxiety of the pandemic. At some point though, I started to think of the poems seriously as a sequence of poems that would eventually have readers. There are 30 of these poems and I'll, I'll read just a few of them. The, the title of the sequence is During the Pandemic. And each poem begins with the phrase, during the pandemic. And I believe that will display some screenshots so you can see what these poems look like on the page. So these are from the sequence, During the Pandemic. During the pandemic, I fixed on each fear. Each fear was its own fastidiousness. My mother and the ocean, not even a touch of it, not even her feet in the tender edge of surf. My friend and the tunnels he went through with his eyes closed. When we went outside, we wore latex gloves, the colors of Easter. We stood apart in the mandated distance, like the last pieces at the end of a game of chess. During the pandemic, I kept a list of possible symptoms on the refrigerator door. From a distance, it looked like a shopping list, an ersatz normalcy. 
fever instead of flour, cough instead of bacon, fatigue instead of milk. With each day, the slippages proliferated, hospital instead of hospitality, projections instead of protections, virus instead of virtue, asymptomatic veered towards asymptote, an infinite infinity between them. During the pandemic, I looked out the window at the moment a runner went by. His stride had an exaggerated beauty, like everything that was outside of my mind. The blue recycling dumpster, the white cereal bowl, the pink full moon. Inside my mind was woe, an attic full of gray insulation. During the pandemic, I thought of what people thought they needed, bread and bleach and guns. The toilet paper aisle laid bare as a cathedral. In his hurried texts, my friend kept saying lost when he meant lots. He was sick already, did not want to be sick twice over. We dreaded all the, un the unseen mechanisms, malign surfaces, malign particles, malign cells. We washed the apples with soap and water. During the pandemic, I thought of scale. Pandemics, I read, had shaped human history from the start, like lava scoring an old landscape with regularity. This was one kind of scale. The tweet from the man announcing his wife's death from the virus was another kind of scale. Soft, the size of my face, the mask I wore to the store was one kind of scale. The racist violence being done to people who looked like me, this was another kind of scale. The poem is the speech of citizenship, a scholar wrote, and I laughed. During the pandemic, I couldn't distinguish between solitude and loneliness, between trivia and news, between restraint and prohibition. I went to the barren track of the high school and felt as a mending walking around in circles. The gulls above looked like scissors. I thought of how we thought of nature as an infinity. This was part of the calamity. During the pandemic, I went outside as into an abstraction. Everybody was a vector. Every public space was a possible inflection point. The very air was a moral injury. 
But there was no abstracting this. The bus driver died, the shoemaker, the chef, the playwright, the nurses and the doctors, the ambassador, the princess, the leader of the band, the scholar of Derrida. During the pandemic, I praised the cherry blossoms. I praised my lungs. I praised crying. I praised the faces of my students checkerboarded on the computer screen. I praised the curses I gave to those who deserve them. I praised coffee. I praised ventilators. I praised the people gathered on the rooftop of a nearby building, laughing as they looked at the night sky. So those are the poems that um, I'm sharing with you today. Thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for a little bit of a Q&A that I'm about to have with the wonderful Jane Wong. Thank you again. Thank you to Rick for that amazing and timely reading. Before we turn to the Q&A with Jane, we have a musical interlude from the Bushwick Book Club Seattle, whose mission is to deliver literature, music, and songwriting to the Seattle community while building the next generation of musicians and readers. Arthur James is here to share a song he wrote and recorded inspired by the Galleons. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Arthur James. I am a singer-songwriter out of Seattle, Washington. I've been given the opportunity and the very distinct pleasure and honor of writing a song based on uh, Rick's work in uh, The Galleons. My dad is Filipino. He was born and raised there, and he, uh, he came to the U.S. in 1973, became a citizen, and joined the Air Force. Um, met my mom, they had my sister and I, and then we moved with my dad everywhere for years, my entire upbringing, really, uh, all around the world. And the first place that we got stationed was Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And it was an incredible experience. I remember being five years old, stepping off the plane after like a, you know, 23 hour <laughs> travel time. And I, I felt at home. I wasn't scared. I wasn't confused. There was no anxiety. I just remember feeling like I was home. And I got to meet my family and I got to meet, uh, my father's friends and see where he grew up and and see where he came from and see the culture and know the people and know the land and i'll never forget that um and i think what happened after i put rick's book down was all of that came back and it's not to say that i don't acknowledge the pride and 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 who i am as a filipino I just didn't think about it like, I didn't think about it the way Rick made me think about it. And so instead of writing a song based on any poem or any handful of poems, I decided to write a song that was inspired by those emotions and, and what that was to me about 
my ethnicity and about my person and about my history. Anyway, it's called, uh, it never once occurred to me. And it's a song that is about me traversing what Rick did to me with the galleons. <laughs> so it goes like this. I make a circle round the sun Holding my hands up My feet are washed in salt As I hold up the sky And it never once occurred to me that I might sink into the sand It never once occurred to me That this might not go as Thank you guys thanks seattle arts and lectures thank you rick hope you guys are all safe and healthy i'm super excited to uh hold a q a with you rick after your beautiful reading um from your book 
the galleons and also from um, some new work too. So uh, yeah, there's a lot to say just to start. Um, there's something about listening to you read um, out loud, um, the musicality of the work comes out, um, the rhythm, the syntax. I know you taught recently a workshop on syntax, is that right, at the Hugo House? I'm about to actually about in uh, about a week or so after yeah. the reading. Yeah, so that's perfect. I was like thinking about your rhythm and your syntax while I was listening to you read. Um, and I'm super excited to celebrate your book, which I have here, and um, excited to chat with you a bit more about um, the book and the process of writing the book. And uh, I also will include some questions that the audience asked as well. So thank you for your time and for being here. And um, thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures too. Uh, so. Well, I want, to, I want to thank you too, Jane, for for doing this and taking the time to do this. It's it's I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. I appreciate it. Um, I feel like we've had so many conversations over the years, and I wish I can kind of like um, grab little threads from those and just like smash them all together into this. Um, I don't know like patchwork of Q&A. Um, so we'll just have a, a few for today, um, but hopefully they're, they're rich questions. Certainly from the audience, there's some wonderful questions too. Um, the first question I really wanted to ask you really is where you started in your reading, uh, which is um, with your grandmother. Um, you mentioned during your reading that this book in part is an elegy for her. And if I'm remembering correctly, um, she was 92. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I'm just curious to hear more about um, the book as an elegy for her. And in particular, I'm continually you know, struck by the Galleons Five and the moment where you're weaving those tapes that you recorded with your own voice, um, your own kind of you know, story and um, what that process was like to kind of, uh, you know, engage her story fully. I also loved you reading it too, because on the page, I kind of read it as it is kind of downward. And so I, I, it's just really was a different way of thinking about these two separate stories intertwining together both on the page and in your voice so maybe we could start there with your with your grandmother whatever you'd like to share maybe about her or her story or your process of of writing this book and thinking about um how to you know translate some of that into um what is lyrical right so i i've been asked a few times about the the catalyst or sort of the origin for the, the book and the poems in the book. And, um, you know, I've said that uh, writing an elegy for my grandmother was really kind of the emotional um, starting point for a lot of the poems. But thinking about the question in general, I, I started to realize that, you know, virtually every poem that I've written, every book that I've written has had the elegiac impulse um, behind it. So I, I, I wonder if, you know, if we all, all of us poets are actually, you know, starting from that place where elegy is the starting point for everything that we do. Uh, in the case of the galleons, there's a very particular um, sort of um, 
uh, person or kind of instigator for the elegy. But I, you know, really when I think about everything that I've done, the elegy is is behind all of that. Um, in terms of the galleons and thinking about her life, I um, I wanted to situate her life. She she lived to 92 years old for most of the 20th century, um, and a lot of things happened in the 20th century that were really dramatic, historically speaking. And I, I just started to wonder what it would be like to live through all kinds of momentous, uh, you know, periods in history the way she did, while also having, you know, the intimate domestic personal experiences that she was having. So juxtaposing those senses of scale, the, the kind of the small individual versus the historical, um, and even sort of abstract notions like capitalism and colonialism, that really, you know, putting those two things together got me thinking about what the poems in the book would be like. And so that's what the, the book is a result of those juxtapositions and also that, that kind of that elegiac uh, impulse. Um, in terms of that poem that you, that you mentioned and that I just uh, read in the reading, The Galleons Five, I had done some uh, interviews with her, a few hours of interviews that we taped together, just talking to each other about various things, looking at photo albums together. And um, when she died, I, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to write elegies uh, about her and I wanted to use some of that material, but I didn't know how to use that material. I, I, I didn't want to write persona poems um, that was, you know, maybe ventriloquizing her voice. That didn't seem a right way of doing sort of justice to her, her story. And I didn't want to write narrative poems sort of imagining what her life had been like. And so at a certain point, it just struck me that literally using her voice and the interview um, excerpts was the way to go. And so that that, that poem became sort of a, a, a way of, you know, having her voice and my voice in strange conversation on the page. And I do wanna uh, make sure to give you credit uh, for my arriving at that forum because you had given a talk at Pacific Lutheran University about the poetics of haunting Mm -hmm. And I, I really started to think about what does it mean to translate a sense of hauntedness into a form? And so the, the kind of the layered back and forth in Galleons 5 is the idea that I came up with after thinking really hard about, you know, what haunting means, thanks to your talk. That's really kind, Rick. Um, thank you so much for that. I was thinking a lot too, at the end of your reading, you talked about the hauntingness inside even the house you kind of grew up in, or your parents' house too, and that um, so much of your work is layered um, quite literally in terms of like images and um, even through the anaphora that happens in that poem, um, 
in other poems too, that it makes me very curious too about that poem kind of linking um, how haunt, hauntedness kind of enters that particular poem. Um, I also love what you said about scale too, that which is so close to us, so deeply personal and magnified close to that which is much larger, like all these things are connected. Um, I'm thinking about in that, the last poem of your book with um, the moment where I think there's like a peeling of wallpaper underneath reminds me of that layering. Uh, but at the same time, you know, somebody is on the phone and that means no one else can use the phone. <laughs> it's also a scale of tone that you move throughout the book that, you know, I love those moments throughout the galleons where, you know, you're just talking to somebody like on the plane, but also other other beautiful lyrical moments are happening. The scale keeps shifting and moving. So thank you so much for these these beautiful poems of of haunted scale and layers of I don't know wallpaper. Um, I would love for you to maybe talk a little bit more about that last poem. I know certainly as poets, like um, ending the book is hard. It's like where do you what's the last piece um, and uh, a bit about the the house or how you wrote this poem, the process of it. Um, it's kind of a litany sort of, um, but yeah, if you want to talk a bit more about that house and sure. The poem. Well, my, my parents have lived uh, in this house in Oakland, California since the uh, mid eighties uh, or so. And I, I spent part of my growing up in that house, and they still live in it. Um, and it's a beautiful old house near Lake Merritt in Oakland. And it's it's over a hundred years old. This house, so there were families, and you know, whole generations of people who lived in it before we did. And uh, but you know, I know it as as the home that that my parents have have owned for a long time, and that I've spent a lot of time in. And wanting to sort of consider and imagine the you know the the kind of the layers of experience and time and emotion that adhere to a place like a house. Um, and also, frankly, you know, the idea of haunting to me, just to go back to that word for a moment, I, I sometimes wonder uh, whether there's a kind of a, um, a dark edge to that term mm. that I don't necessarily see there when I think about that word. I, 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 can, I consider ha hauntedness or being haunted um, as it can be a positive sort of charge Mm -hmm. uh, a positive experience, an experience of fullness and richness rather than darkness, maybe. So, you know, but, you know, experience is complicated. Uh, and so even if, uh, you know, darkness is there, there's, al there's always something else as a kind of a contrast or as an opposite to that. And so that, that poem about the house, the original impulse was to write an ode um, that would praise the house and the life and the lives that I and my family have had in it. But I kept realizing that, you know, within the impulse to praise, uh, adjacent to that is always, you know, mourning or loss 
or fear or dread or mortality. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that poem, you know, there, there's the impulse to praise in the ode, but then there are these interruptions. There are these disruptions that are always sort of thwarting joy or thwarting light or getting in the way of a kind of, you know, um, a positive emotion. Um, So it's, it's a poem about that maybe that, you know, we, we, we hope to praise knowing that we may also have to, you know, cry. Yeah, that's really well said. I think to how this poem ends, um, I used to think that to write poems, to make art, meant trying to transcend the prosaic elements of the self to arrive at some essential plane where poems were supposed to secede. I was wrong. Um, I love this ending. And I'm thinking a lot about what you said about, um, you know, praising something, right? But also being interrupted with, um, yeah, grief or, you know, loss, even thinking back to the elegy, um, that that's kind of like the process of writing poetry too, that there is something where, you know, there is this joy in the act of writing, but also a lot Mm -hmm. of something else, right, that it's hard to define. Um, So I just wanted to kind of like, um, honor how how beautiful the this poem is and how it reaches this kind of, um, I don't know, comment on on what poetry can do also in terms of being an elegy. Um, No, uh, let me let me jump in for a minute and and talk uh, specifically about the ending of the poem. Because yeah. I, I forgot to address that. Because uh, I know you you had mentioned that in your in your question. Um, part of the impulse in that ending is also to push back on my education as a poet. If uh, um, you know, for many poets, um, there's a certain kind of indoctrination that you get in poetry that talks about the the aims or the ambitions of poetry that involves things like transcendent or the epiphanic or something really kind of grandiose about, you know, what you're supposed to aim for as a poet. And it's tied to this kind of romantic notion, romantic capital R, uh, of the poet, frankly, usually, you know, uh, a solitary white male poet Mm-hmm. striving for a certain kind of sublime sort of like, you know, quality in their work. Um, and so that's the kind of education I think that many of us get when we go through, um, you know, an education in poetry, that poetry is in a way kind of separate and that it is individual and that there's, there's an element of the heroic about uh, poetry and writing poetry. And so that ending to that poem is, is really a kind of a, a discovery in my part over decades of writing that, no, <laughs> you know, poetry, poetry is not necessarily transcendent or heroic, or it's not about things that are abstract or out of reach. Poetry is about the everyday. It's about the intimate. It's about the the kind of the broken and the misunderstood and the marginalized. 
um, even if those, you know, marginalized and broken things are within yourself. So, you know, it's a kind of, I guess, a, a kind of a poetic statement uh, pushing back on a whole education in poetry that I have received, uh, which suggests that poetry is separate from, exempt from, you know, the real world. Mm. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And um, I feel like I had that education too. So I, um, I hear you. And I, I, I also feel so deeply that, of course, like poetry is tied to um, the real world um, in ways and the fact that we forget that because of this like idea of like exaltation or coming to some sort of larger truth with a capital T um, that in many ways it's um, thinking about back to the elegy um, or kind of the traditions of the elegy too. this kind of like um, sort of acceptance towards the end uh, or expected kind of like realization towards the end of an, an elegy um, to kind of undo that tradition and kind of mm -hmm. think about it um, in terms of being like this endlessness. Um, we talk about in you know, another Galleon's poem, the kind of the, um, you know, history and the kind of like moving through a net or something of that sort. Um, and that that's not clean either or not kind of, um, there's no epiphany here. That's um, right. Yeah. So I just thought that was so beautiful. Um, well, also this idea, Jane, that, you know, I, I always talk to my students about the fact that poetry is this umbrella genre. Mm -hmm. And within poetry itself, there are all of these subgenres, um, thematic genres like the love poem or the elegy or the curse or the political poem. And then formal genres like the sonnet or the villanelle. Um, you know, but, you know, poetry is uh, actually a catchphrase for a teeming amount of genres. Um, <laughs> but I think that uh, every generation has to reiterate, rewrite what those genres are and what they mean in the vocabulary of the moment. So the idea of the elegy, it's not a set form. It's not a set sort of like idea. We each have to rewrite that thing when we write. That's our job in a way. Yeah, I definitely think um, I completely agree with that. I think too that without rewriting it, um, there, I feel like nothing would uh, kind of move. It feels very static. Um, and I was thinking actually about that in terms of the writing process too. Um, there's a great audience question um, about process in particular and how I'm trying to kind of connect these two ideas too, that um, there's also an expectation as to what a writer's process looks like mm -hmm. um, and um, how we can kind of upend that too as, as writers um, and to have our own different moments of inspiration or a different approach to a poem from uh, you know, like a poem you wrote, you know, 10 years ago, there's, there's so much fluctuation. Um, and this is a, a question from the audience. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your research journey for the book? Anything from your travels, readings, ekphrastic studies? So um, maybe an, a kind of encounter that you had while writing the book in terms of the process of it, um, have it be, you know, even a moment of inspiration that 
again, may be surprising um, mm -hmm. outside of what we may expect um, in terms of how a poem arrived on the page? Um, first of all, I want to say that I'm a poet. I'm not a nonfiction writer or a fiction writer or a journalist. Um, and I think that for each one of those uh, people, research um, is a very different thing. That I think that for a novelist who's writing a novel about a particular time period or a community or you know, a set of people, there's a kind of systematic research that they're doing about that particular period or group of people. Same thing uh, for the nonfiction writer, even if they're writing a book, let's say about their own family history, there's a, you know, there's a kind of orderly uh, strategy for doing that kind of research. I'm a poet, which is a, which is a very different uh, I have a very different uh, relationship to to uh, research, um, and the, the the closest analogy I can come to is, you know, going to Goodwill on a Saturday afternoon and just picking up various things that catch my eye. Um, that's what research looks like to me, in the sense that I'm constantly putting myself in um, in front of. Um, texts or images or artwork or experiences and I'm watching myself watching these things mm. and noticing what I notice. So I did do quite a bit of research uh, for the poems in the Galleons. Uh, historical research, a lot of history books, a lot of online research, as well as uh, actual traveling to archives and museums. But I wasn't, I, I wasn't taking everything down. I wasn't doing that thing where I was noting everything that I saw. I would, you know, I would write down or pay attention to the things that caught my eye for some reason or caught my mind for some reason, knowing that that, that, that thing, that object, that flash of color or anecdote meant something later on that my imagination would expand upon or elaborate upon in a poem. So that's a really irresponsible sounding way of doing research, <laughs> you know, that it's actually just uh, bargain hunting. But um, that, that's really for me what, what it means to be a poet in a way. It's about um, just sort of, observing the things that uh, seemingly don't have poetic resonance necessarily, but understanding that everything does. And part of the poem's work will be to somehow uncover what that, you know, resonant energy is. I love that, that trying to kind of like uncover that resonant energy and, you know, that like all these elements are going to be important. Like you never know too. Um, yeah. If you ever want to go thrifting with me, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, metaphorically or literally, um, <laughs> we can do that. Um, I'm, I'm ready for that. You know, first we'll do that. Then we'll have some dim sum. 
Yes, I love it. That's like, actually, that's perfect because in Seattle, there's actually, um, you know, the Dearborn Goodwill right by um, the ID. So, you know, I think you're onto something. Um, well, you know, I want to I add just one thing that I, I just remembered. Um, one of the exercises that I sometimes do with my students is, you know, I, I, I tell them that if, if, you know, there are 15 of us in a, in a room, and we go outside for five minutes and each of us has to make a list of the five things that we notice while walking around outside for a few minutes. And we come back to, you know, our classroom and compare notes. We're all going to have five different things. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's about the, the, the subjectivities that, you know, that every person has and they're all different from each other. And so what does that mean? That I notice five different things and that you uh, notice five different things. You know, those things that you notice are indications of, you know, all kinds of things within your mind and your psyche and within your heart and spirit, out of which poems can be written. So, you know, that subjectivity, I think, is incredibly important. So, you know, the thrifting metaphor is just one way of talking about that subjectivity. Yeah, that's uh, beautifully said in the sense of like this, um, how, how that's going to be different from, for every person. But that is a, a thing for a poet to notice, like the, the noticing, the act of noticing. Um, and, you know, right now there's actually a, a rabbit outside my window that's kind of watching us. So that's, that's really, I'm noticing the, the rabbit noticing us, which is um, kind of funny. Um, but uh, I can't wait to read that poem, Jane. I know, right? It's exactly, <laughs> it's going to show up. Um, uh, maybe I was, I have one last question for you, actually kind of uh, about noticing. And it's about the last um, few poems that you shared with us, the new work, um, uh, you know, during the pandemic, what does it mean to write during um, these times during COVID? And uh, I can't help but think about, you know, your, you know, the poems that you're writing during this time, especially as a series, um, what you're noticing around you. Um, one of my favorite pieces that you read from that series is that poem where um, you have uh, the kind of note on the the fridge and um, it from afar, it may look like a shopping, a grocery list, but you know, what does it mean to have like symptoms there? It's a fever instead of flower, um, for instance, moment. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit um, about your process of writing this, this new series and um, what you're noticing during this time as you're writing. Uh, yeah. Well, I, 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 I don't remember if I, if I mentioned this during the intro to that part of my reading, but uh, for most of March, I, I was using the, 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 the notes app on my phone just to scribble language um, as a kind of coping, uh, it was almost like a tick. I just needed to kind of put language down as it came to me knowing that I was feeling a lot of anxiety and fear about the pandemic. So, you know, and this is uh, like many of you, you probably use your phone to put down, uh, you know, grocery lists, shopping yeah. lists. So I was thinking of um, 
these bits of language that I was writing down, mostly as a kind of just, you know, utilitarian way of kind of, you know, giving myself therapy in a way. Um, it wasn't until much later after I'd written quite a number of them that I realized that they could be um, real poems. And at that point, I, I, I did start to earnestly craft them and, you know, make them into the things that they are now. But that's, that's sort of the origin. It started in, you know, just sort of this emotional malaise that I was feeling and I needed poetry, which has been so important and complicated and rich in my life as a way of, in a way, you know, helping me to, to kind of cope and heal and save myself. So that's what it was for. It was, it was a way of putting down in language some of this emotional just darkness that I was experiencing. Yeah, as you said, um, what it means to need poetry, I think during this time uh, speaks volumes. And um, in particular, that there's just these kind of um, short pieces to the fragmentation of them to the kind of, um, you know, that we're, we're in a space where things feel a bit like in pieces. Um, and so I, I think especially resonated with it, this being a series, like a, a ritual of kind mm -hmm. of writing a new thing, but only a little bit. Um, it feels kind of like expansive together. So thank you so much for sharing that that new work. It's always so vulnerable to share new work. So I really appreciate you doing that, um, especially with the larger cell audience um, here. Um, Thank you so much, Rick, for all that you said. I feel like I could probably talk with you for another, um, like, another hour plus. Um, maybe we'll definitely do that over dim sum <laughs> um, in the near future. And uh, congratulations again on the Galleons. It's a beautiful book. Um, it's one that I I feel a, a deep sense of. Uh, I don't know, kind of. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of healing in, in the book, um, but there's also a lot of wrestling with these, these kind of, um, you know, larger questions about us as, as a society, as, as, as people too, kind of, especially with the Louis Vuitton punching bag and there's, a, there's, you know, and then the, the girl at the ladder, there's just, there's so much kind of, I don't know, um, so many connections. I feel like this book really has a very um, constellation feel to it. Um, so I, I kind of keep after returning to, to the book to kind of make more and more of these constellations. So thank you so much for your beautiful book and for your time. And um, I hope you all really enjoyed uh, Rick's reading for uh, the Seattle Arts and Lectures. And um, yeah, thanks, Rick. Thank you so much, Jane, especially for all of those uh, generous comments and just the, the large hearted uh, questions as well. So yes, we'll go thrifting. Okay, it's a done deal. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thank you so much to Rick Barrett and Jane Wong for joining us on the Virtual Sal stage. 
Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.